this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with C.A. Johnson, the playwright of all the Natalie Portmans that premiered at MCC this February, and also The Climb, which was part of the 2019 Cherry Lane Mentor Project. Her play Thirst was produced at the Contemporary American Theatre Festival and Straw Dog Theatre in Chicago. It has been a little while since the last episode, and a lot has happened. Honestly, I've been dreading recording this intro because there's not really anything I can say that hasn't already been said or doesn't, you know, I feel this intense fear even just putting this episode out. And I'm thinking about why that is and, you know, it's it's my own attachment to being right or having to be seen a certain way. And I'm realizing that the most productive thing I can do is to keep going and to face my own fears. I listened back to this episode and there are a lot of moments where I'm, I'm like, Rachel, say something, ask CA a question. I really took the, uh, you know, practice listening note to heart. And uh, what I realized listening back to the episode is that part of what how we can move forward is to engage even if we're afraid of looking stupid and there is also a moment in the episode where i speak about what's going on in the american theater and how it's reacting to this time of uprising against police brutality against black and brown bodies but really i meant to say the national reckoning with systemic racism and oppression against black and brown people But in that moment, I could not decide if I should say systemic or systematic. And so I just didn't say anything at all. And I think it's such a small and tiny instance of how we betray ourselves when we don't want to look stupid. And I think, how do we combat that? How do we go out on a limb and also be generous with ourselves? That's all to say, thank you so much for listening and for being generous with me. And CA is incredibly generous and brilliant, and I'm so grateful that we got to speak together. Uh, I talked a little bit more in this intro than I normally do, but I think it's because I missed I missed you all. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Here is CA Johnson. How's it going, CA? <laughs> It's going. You know, it's Wednesday. <laughs> it is Wednesday. Are you still? Uh, I know I reached out to you pre-pandemic mm-hmm. before your show closed and uh, you were busy writing, staff writing on a TV show. Were you still writing through pandemic? I was, yeah. You know, the room ended just before uh, everything shut down, but, you know, we were all still on script. So I was in a weird situation where like the play was completely shut down, but I still owed drafts for the TV show. So Mm -hmm. even when I wanted to sort of burrow and go dark, I still owed writing to my showrunner and to some producers who were like, where's it at, CA? And I was like, (laughs) good question. Has that show gone into production yet? No, no. So that that show is a show that I worked on pretty early in its inception. So it's um, a show created by Mario Heller, who is the director of Diary of a Teenage Girl and Can You Ever Forgive Me and uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, that Mr. Rogers film. Um, 
And Mari's brilliant and wonderful. And so she's creating a show in-house at a production company. So all of the writers got in on the ground floor to build the show with her. So it doesn't, it's not even set up at a studio yet or making the rounds at networks because she's, I think she's making a beautiful baby. <laughs> that she'll then take out when she's ready. That's awesome. Yeah. Is, that your, is that your first TV gig or have you been staffed? No, it was, uh, it was my third um, I had written for two series on Fox, uh, The Passage, uh, which ran in like 2018, 2019. And then I wrote for a series called Filthy Rich, which hasn't aired yet. It airs this fall. Um, and that one's a wild and crazy Southern Gothic madhouse. <laughs> but it's got uh, Kim Cattrall. So it was fun to write for Kim Cattrall. I'll take that. <laughs> but this was, this new show was the first time that I'd worked in like uh, the premium space. Whatever that is, it's definitely not network. It's way too, uh, too smart and nuanced. So I'm excited to see where it ends up. I've never thought about that before, that network is less smart. I mean, and like not always. I mean, let me not talk crap about network i grew up on network tv you know what i mean but like Mm -hmm. i think because of all the rules it's harder to be smart you know like i'm not gonna lie the good fight is great television the good wife was great television and those are network shows Mm -hmm. but they found a way to come back like every week and like do the serialized what's the case of the day but then still be badass i mean so it was great anatomy lost there's great network tv everywhere it just requires a great 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 mind yeah and strong showrunner Yes. So how how have you been, you know, how have you been keeping yourself through pandemic? <laughs> like, what have you been, what have you been uh, doing? What have I been doing? I feel like, <laughs> I guess I feel like that's the question. All right, right now, I feel like there's no conversation that begins with anyone at this time where you're not like, how you been, how you been holding up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like a... Uh, what have I been doing? I started out quarantining at my place in Astoria. Um, I've been in Astoria for about six years and I love my apartment. So it was me and my two roommates, my partner and my roommate's dog. And that was actually really nice because we all could just wear our anxiety and nobody was not anxious. So like nobody felt crazy. We all would just have moments where we're like, I'm going to wash my hands again. I just <laughs> wash them, but I think I need to. And everybody would be like, yeah, do it, do it. We support you. Um, (laughs) And we did that for like four or five weeks. And then we just wanted a change. And my partner lives in Brooklyn and her apartment has a deck. So eventually we just moved. And so I've been in Brooklyn for probably like a month and a half now, or I don't, I really, not even gonna lie and pretend I know what time is, but I've been in Brooklyn, which has been nice because it's quieter. Astoria can be really busy and a lot of foot traffic and here things are more spread out. There's more green. I've loved mm-hmm. that. I told myself I was going to read. I've not been reading. It's like, I don't have, I don't know if this is happening to you, but we're on these like weird cycles of anxiety. And so I feel like my reading just gets disrupted. I'm trying to find it again, but I, I've had a really hard time. So I've been watching stuff and like a combination of old things that make me happy, like reruns of The Office, reruns of like Parks and Rec and uh, dipping my toe into new things. Like I just started watching that new Michaela Cole show, I May Destroy You on HBO. Mm. Holy crap, so beautiful, so intense, really devastating. (laughs) I like fully endorse people watching it, but I'm also like, beware, tough content. But like, I feel like I've just been finding the things to consume that don't make me feel heavy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I, I I started playing The Sims again. I haven't played The Sims since like high school. Wow. Like, here we are. <laughs> Did they update it or is it 
like the same as high school? It's sort of the same, but it's, uh, you know, I have, I've been, I'm an owner of an Xbox. So it has like, uh, I'm playing it on a console, which when I was young, I played it on a computer. So it's a little different. And there's all these like expansion packs and like all these cool things you can add now. Like I, I was playing and everything was normal. And then I added something called seasons pack or something. And now like there's winter <laughs> and there's holidays and they're like, today's Winterfest. And I'm like, is that Christmas? Is that Hanukkah? I'm like, you guys just slid right past that. But <laughs> I love to celebrate Winterfest. I think that just makes everything a little easier. I've been thinking about it. It's like, of course, now I want to play The Sims because it's just a game where people get up every day and go to work. Right. Yeah. yeah like, it's uh, Tim's birthday and tomorrow he gets his promotion. Like, I'm like, these Sims are having a more normal life than me. So, of course, I'm playing it. <laughs> Have you been writing? What are your cycles around work right now? Sort of right after everything shut down. Like my plate closed on March 12th and I was on script for the TV show. So I was like, churn out that draft and like think about the play later. And then I churned out my first draft of my TV episode. And then I was like, uh, I really don't want to think about the about all the Natalie Portmans or that empty set sitting in that empty building. I don't want to think about any of that. So I'm just going to write a new play. And so probably two weeks after the whole city shut down, I wrote a brand new play. And it's wild and crazy and kind of unlike anything I've written before, which was a surprise. I wrote it without thinking. So it sort of is irreverent and in my opinion, shocking. Sometimes the characters would say or do things and I was like, what is this? (laughs) Um, But you know, I, I love it. And, you know, it's draft 1.5. So ask me again in three years when it's gone through at least one workshop and it'll be a whole different piece. But I did finish it and I was like, oh, that was such a labor of love. And I don't know where it's going to go. You know what I mean? Like I've written this thing. And if I were on the normal sort of assembly line of the theater making, I'd call up all my favorite actors and we'd go grab a room at the Lark and we'd just read it. And they'd ask me questions and I'd be like, great. And then I'd start writing again. But I feel like none of that's possible right now. So I sort of finished the draft, didn't want to think about it. I wound up emailing the Lark's roundtable director, Krista Williams. And I was like, Krista, I wrote this thing. I don't know what to do. And she was like, I don't know what to do either. So I wound up being the first virtual table read that they'd done. So I've heard it and that was nice. And I learned some stuff. And I, I also, I'm, I'm a core writer at the Playwright Center. So I owed them my final workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made that virtual. So we did a like a three-day workshop of my play, I Know, I Know, I Know, which I approached very differently. I was like, I'm not in the room watching the actors make choices and being able to play. So I really just used it as a way to listen and to reacquaint myself with the play. I didn't make any changes really while we were in it. I was like, no, let's just go. Let's read. Let's ask questions. And then let's do this sort of virtual invite and have people hear the play. But, you know, it's a play about, that play's about four women who've been best friends since high school who all go to a beach house and yell at each other. The whole magic of the thing is being in the space with those ladies while they're freaking out. (laughs) Um, So it was like, I can't, I can't achieve that through screens. So I don't think I'm going to try. Instead, I'm going to try to find and hear what I can hear and change what I can change and like leave the rest intact so that I don't start moving pieces that I actually don't understand. And since then, I haven't written but much. I think writing plays is hard right now. I, mm-hmm. It's like deep soul work, writing a play. 
<laughs> and I feel like my deep soul is a little exhausted. So I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to write that play about that thing that on the surface is funny, but any C.A. Johnson play isn't really funny. You will <laughs> laugh, but it's not really funny. And I haven't had, I haven't had the muscle. I love that you are recognizing kind of, it seems like you have such a clear idea of the limitations of what is possible right now in divorcing your work from, I love that you're just like, the magic of the play is this and therefore, yeah, you know, it's yeah. it doesn't mean anything when we see it on this like digital space. I think for sure, that kind for of sure. awareness is so useful. <laughs> well, but I also, I feel like it depends on the writer, right? Like I, I am such an actor's writer. I, I truly think I became a playwright because I loved the idea that I could write something down and somebody could say it and it could be real, you know, <laughs> not just in my head, but it comes to life. And I learned so much sitting at a table, watching an actor make choices and sitting in a room, watching an actor, an act change. I don't know a way to get that right now through theater. You know, I'm fortunate and not every writer is fortunate. I'm fortunate that I also work in the film and TV space so I can sort of refocus my eye and be like, oh, I know how to do the thing that I love there. And I know that they have an apparatus that like doesn't need the whole body and like air in a room. It just needs eyes and a camera, you know, (laughs) and like an actor making a teeny tiny choice that a camera can track. Like that I know I can do with success right now, but I don't know if I can do that in the theater and I'm not all that interested in a fake version of it. And I know why theater communities are trying to have voices and like keep it churning, keep it going. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but what is it? (laughs) I mean, like all power to keeping it going, but I'm like, what are we keeping going? If like people are just looking at screens saying lines and they can't make eye contact and you know, suspend time with breath. You know what I mean? I yeah. I miss those stakes and we can't really have them just yet. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what my process is, if I'm being honest. It's a lot of cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm optimistic in this moment. So I identify with that so much. I was so glad to be able to catch all the Natalie Portmans before it closed. It was like one of the last things I saw before we weren't allowed to leave our homes. Mm-hmm. Was that that was your first New York production? Is that right? It was. It was. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm still not sure it was real, but <laughs> there are photo evidence. <laughs> so exciting to get to be there and experience that show. What was your experience of putting it up? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. You know, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who did my time, right? So I went and I got the MFA and I tried to learn what a play was and to learn what playwriting was and a career in the theater was. And it's like, that is no way to really prep you. You know, <laughs> when you're in those programs, you're learning tricks and tools of survival and of the craft, but you're not learning how to do the thing. And so mm-hmm. having an actual production where I was there for every step of it, you know, because I've had um, two out-of-town productions of uh, my play Thirst. I had one in the Contemporary American Theater Festival in West Virginia and one at uh, Straw Dog Theater Company in Chicago. And I love that play. And that play is sort of like a somewhat Greek, somewhat dystopian sci-fi drama about like race and queerness. It's really crazy and wild. And in both those cases, I was I wasn't there for a bulk of the production and so like I did get to see my work on its feet I did get to see beautiful actors making beautiful choices but I wasn't there for all the steps I hadn't done the troubleshooting I hadn't seen how hard it was to build 
those performances. Mm-hmm. And with my, just from like workshops and residencies, I know that stuff comes up when people work on my place, things that I think they don't expect come up and the conversations we have in the room are sometimes about the play and sometimes about society and sometimes about, you know, the things we carry. <laughs> and so being in a room for the entirety of a play's rehearsal and tech and then previews was wild. I mean, I I thought I was just writing a sweet play about a girl <laughs> who loved a movie star. And yeah, her life was tough, right? Her life is, you know, they're living at the poverty line. Her mom's an alcoholic. Her brother has had to become her dad in a weird way. Like there's a lot of hard choices being made in this family every day. But at the end of the day, I was like, it's still about a kid who wants to dream. And I felt really good about that. But then once we were in the room, it was like, oh, right. The things she's dealing with are really heavy things and traumas, you know, and traumas touch people in many different ways. And a lot of Black folks share traumas. And so like we were both dealing with the play, dealing with the ways the actors took in the play, what what they needed to work through that was on the page, what they needed to work through that was in their own hearts, you know, what questions they had about my intentions that I could answer and which ones I couldn't. Mm-hmm. If that was the case, what was our next step? It was really hard work, but it was beautiful because I had the best partner ever. Kate Wariski is like an original gangster, so I wasn't worried ever. You know, I'm working with a director who's multiple times been in the ring with Lynn Nottage, so she's already had to do the work. You know what I mean? And so the questions I had were never, can we do this? They were, how? Or I've never done this before. And she'd be like, I have. That's why we're a team. And so it was all in all a wildly joyous experience. Like, I feel like those actors in my family, I mean, and many of them already were. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kara Young, who played the lead, I built the play onto her. So she'd been doing readings for three years, two and a half years. And Renika Williams, who played Chantel, she'd been in my Cherry Lane Mentor Project workshop production of a different play, The Climb. She'd been the lead in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've said a million times, like, I will work with Renika for the rest of my career. She's mm-hmm. <laughs> so crazy, but such a genius. Like, she's like, she's uh, such a, um, she's one of the funniest people I know. She's one of the hardest workers I know. And so, 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 so smart. And she's mm-hmm. always learning and always evolving and always finding other angles. And I, I feel like this is the cast full of that kind of actor. So our work was never over. They were never satisfied. Mm-hmm. They're always more. And I'd be like, probably, I'm pretty tired, but if you guys want to keep going, go right on ahead. Uh, we've opened. Um, I'm going to be at home. Uh, <laughs> 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 they were just hard workers. I mean, I got to work with Montego Glover. That's crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any, I mean, so like you said, the story is about a family living at the poverty line and you're, you're talking about a lot of trauma in the Black experience. Did you have any reservations about taking a story like that into kind of an elite white space? What, are the, what, what did you feel like were your responsibilities in telling that kind of story in, in a white space? Not necessarily white. I, I should say elite. Not yeah, I mean, they're, they're a PWI. It's fine. Um, I mean, I think they're a theater who's trying to do the work, but they're a PWI. They're an off-probably theater in New York City. They rarely aren't that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's something I think about a lot because I feel like every few years or probably every year there's a play that like makes people get up in the arms about what stories we tell about black folks in white spaces. Mm-hmm. And some of that is about representation and like the the sort of weight of representation like 
you make a choice in front of a predominantly white audience and they take that as fact, even though it is art. You know, they take that as self-definition, even though it is creation. <laughs> um, and you're like, um, and they're like, oh, did this happen to you? And you're like, no, it's a play. I'm a writer. I'm capable of imagining a scenario. There are things that I know about how the world works, but not every little Black thought I've ever had is in this little Black play. And I think in taking all that in and in, you know, watching the work of so many of my Black peers in the theater, I was like, okay, I need to decide a few things. And I think I, I, I always try to lead with a few things in mind. My stories are Black, but they are also queer. And I have to find a balance of storytelling that is true to both those identity markers. I'm also often telling stories of women. That's a whole other lens. Like there's a sort of like web of <laughs> intersecting identities that I'm sort of juggling in a given play. And like any writer worth the space they take up is asking those questions, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know that I have to find the balance between doing all those things. But I also have to remember that anytime that I engage with one of those conversations, there's somebody in that audience. If the theater has done their work and they've given me an audience that is diverse and complex, someone in that audience is going to have both moments of identification and moments of like, ouch. And I'm always like, if I'm out here to make sure that there are plays that feel more representative of what I know in the world, and they might also be representative of what somebody else knows. And what I need to be sure I'm not doing is re-traumatizing them. I think that like, I am not, I'm not in the business of inflicting pain to make a point. I'm not in the business of inflicting pain because it's avant-garde. I'm not in the business of like, you know, using the former structure of what I do to make a point. I don't feel I'm necessarily a political playwright in the sense that I think some others are. I think that for me, my guiding principle is that the personal is political. The closer you go to the skin, the more universally political the argument is, but also the more of a, what's the word I'm trying to find? An empathic path to somebody's pain rather than one that points and goes like, you see black pain. I'm like, yeah, I see. I'm exhausted. I see that every day. So what is the way that you show me that thing that also makes me feel seen and loved? And so I'm like, how, with all the Natalie Portman's, it was like, okay, this kid has an alcoholic mother. What do I not need? I don't need to see her being like slapped around the stage. I don't need to see her mother cursing her out. I don't need to see, I was like, but I do need to be honest about what that violence is like what that everyday violence is like. And so it was like, all right, she has to be mighty. She has to be unkind and she has to be quick. You know what I mean? She has to be able to do that thing that alcohol sort of like unlatches. But also I knew that I needed to be clear on a few things that like a person can do all those things and still love their child. So how do I honor that violence, but also honor the love underneath it? And one does not cancel the other out. I don't think that Oveta is a character who needs to be let off the hook. She's made a lot of mistakes, but I do think that like we have to be honest about the the injuries she caused and also honest about the injuries she inflicted on herself and the injuries that her children sometimes inflict on her. It's all true, but it's like, how do you, how do you paint all sides of the cube? I don't know. I feel like I, I have to protect audience members of color when they're in spaces that don't always know or care about them. But my play has to know and care about them because then that makes that space safe, hopefully. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't save them from the audience member who says you're too loud. Like that kind of white person is just going to be there and we all unfortunately have to deal with them. (laughs) But I think like 
if I can make the moment when they maybe see something that hurts also a moment where they get a hug from me, then I've done the work. And it's why I like to just fill the world with laughter, fill the world with love. Like that family is dealing with so much, but there's nothing I loved watching grow in the rehearsal room more than Kara Young and Josh's relationship as siblings. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like ultimately... Samuel, the brother, is going to make a choice that doesn't rupture the relationship, but ruptures the sort of equilibrium they build with the family. You know, he's a Black kid trying to be like a Black son and father at the same time. That's too much pressure. You end up cutting corners and like white kids can cut corners and they do just fine. Black kids cut corners and they end up behind bars. Like those are the facts. And I think if I was going to say that thing that was true, because I think it needs to be said, and it needs to not be a statistic, but it needs to be about how the weight of trauma forces impossible choices. Mm-hmm. Then I need to be sure that that boy is loved. You know what I mean? That that boy is good because I come from a family with like so many incarcerated men. And there are two things I know about them. They're criminals and they're the most fun, the most loving. Like the number of times I had an uncle get out of jail and come home with gifts for me and wrap me in a hug. And I felt how deeply he missed me you know what I mean Mm. and I'm like you gotta do all of it otherwise you're so interested in saying something to a white audience that you're not interested in taking care of a black audience and like that I that I can't stand by so with all Nellie Portman's I was just like I hope I got it right (laughs) and I I don't know I had I had some pretty good moments after the curtain of people coming up being like thank you or like that was my mom dude that was heavy and I'm like sorry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you okay and they're like no no i'm good i'm like okay <laughs> stress um yeah yeah i love hearing that you f- you saying you feel a need to take care of your black audience members or your audience members who might identify with the experiences you're putting on stage do you feel like you also need to be taken care of do you feel like the institutions have taken care of you that you've gone through I think it depends on the institution. You know, I wound up at MCC because of Jessica Chase. Jess read me, and when I was out in LA working on a TV show, and MCC had uh, remounted their production of Schoolgirls in LA, mm-hmm. um, she emailed me and was like, let's grab a coffee. And what I loved about that meeting wasn't that I didn't feel that way that you can feel at some white theaters where they're like, tell me about yourself. And it's clear that they're trying to like, I don't know, prove that they're in the know or prove that they're the right place for your Black story or like that they're hip. You know what I mean? There's just some weird, we're at a point as a society where like spaces that are predominantly white that are in any way um, woke, I hate that word, but in any way, even remotely woke are aware of their whiteness. And so you sit down and they're like, we know we're white, but da 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 da. And with Jess, there was just none of that. She was like, what's up? And we had coffee and we talked and we like talked about the play. She asked where it was headed. It didn't feel transactional, but it didn't also didn't feel like she was trying to wrap me in like a woke white hug. It felt like she was just trying to get to know me and that she knew that anything besides that was uh, disrespectful. (laughs) That she was just like, she'd done the ropes and she was like, what's up? Cool. This is great. Let me know what happens with the play. And when I told her what happened with the play, she came to another reading. Then she asked for the draft again. And then she was like, yo, let's do this. And it was that clear. And I didn't have to do weird song and dances where like they brought me in for a workshop of the thing and then nobody knew what they were going to do. And then they gave me back, you know, it was just like, oh, here we go. 
Mm-hmm. And like, did the theater still have questions about the play? Absolutely. But we did an in-house workshop ahead of the production. We brought in the cast. We just continued to do that work. But I didn't feel like I was being put up against some weird thing where it's like, well, we're choosing between you and this other Black. <laughs> and are you going to be the Black? Like, I just never felt, I never felt that pressure. And I think that in MCC specifically, that might be because of, you know, the culture they've been building over the last few seasons. If all the Natalie Portman's hadn't closed for two weeks, the only two shows playing at MCC would have been me and Nollywood Dreams by Jocelyn Beale. And that would have been, I think, the first time in MCC history that there were two Black women playing at the same time. Mm. And as a theater also, last season, they had both Blacks and uh, The Light. You know what I mean? Like they are starting and working as a company to be more representative of but it's possible in the theater and that's exciting. And so like, I think it was the right first experience. Was it a perfect experience? No, because things come up and there are things that happen in all facets of developing plays as a person of color in the theater that are just wild. Like I, (laughs) and like that aren't wild because anybody is malicious, but it's just the way that questions are asked or the things that uh, tastemakers feel are interesting in the work that they want to ask you about are so beside the point. You know, they're just a superficial thing that's easiest for a white mind to grasp mm-hmm. um and i'm like that's fine that part i can handle i've been black for a long time i know what that is as long as you're not getting in the way of my work and like it's it's layered right like the best play i saw this season even though the season ended early was in links i was i'd never seen a play that so clearly was trying to articulate the madness that working in the theater as a person of color engenders. Like Celine had been writing plays for years and she says like, oh, I think people want the Korean play from me. All right, I'll write the Korean play. And halfway through writing the Korean play, she was like, ugh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because that's just not me. And it's not because I am not Korean. It is because that is not my voice. And my voice is different and that's okay. And like to watch the form of a play, like, (laughs) like literally enact what, I, as a person of color working in the theater, have felt like, oh, here's the play about the Black family doing the Black family thing. And then halfway through, you're like, man, I really wish I could write something like the flick. (laughs) You know what I mean? I actually literally thought Annie Baker before those words came out of your mouth. Yeah, like nobody's asking Annie Baker, like, what (laughs) is she saying about Blackness? Nobody was asking her what that Black man in the flick was. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, we we don't do that in the same ways to white writers they're just allowed to play in the sandbox. And sometimes I just want to play in the sandbox. Just give me the right. It'll all be okay, guys. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I was given space to play at MCC. I will say I've been lucky because at um, Contemporary American Theater Festival, where they, did, where they did Thirst, that's a summer festival that specializes in all new work and daring work. And Thirst is such a big, violent play. And they were like, let's do it. And there was never a question. There was never a, they were like, no, this is what we do here. And I was like, okay, you guys have a whole shtick, you know? <laughs> so that was great. And same with Straw Dog, you know, they're a small company in Chicago, non-equity. So it was like these actors who don't always get to grab at work like that and dig in deep. And I thought it was beautiful. I don't know. I, I haven't had the horrible experience yet. And I have heard of the horrible experiences and I have friends who have had the horrible experience, but I, I haven't had that one yet. Just microaggressions, nothing macro. <laughs> but now that I've said that, it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, do you think we're at a moment of real, ch- 
I mean, what is real? I'm yeah, I hate that phrase real change, but you know, while we've been in quarantine, a lot has happened to say the least in the world and subsequently in the American theater. And I've also been hearing some like anger or I don't know if it's anger, but maybe resentment toward the fact that American theater is using this moment to talk about something that might be beside the point Mm -hmm. of what is happening in the world, which to name it, you know, police brutality against black and brown people. Yeah. How are you feeling about the proposed possible change and what's happening in, in the industry in relationship to the world? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I feel like the theater, I'm, I'm a little surprised. Let me start with that. I think that the theater is an archaic little dragon <laughs> that doesn't want to change. Um, and I think like we saw that evidence with Me Too, right? Me Too swept through LA. Like as a person who's worked in writer's rooms, the energy in those rooms are people who are really, really relaxed for the first time in their careers and people who are really, really terrified of screwing up because they know they have in the past. <laughs> you know, like people who are like, well, we can't say that. And it gets passive aggressive, right? Because they're like, well, you know, Nobody wants to get sued. And I'm like, you know what? I'll deal with this passive aggression because it means I don't have to deal with whatever is behind that. You know what I mean? There is a a wave of people being called out and changes being implemented. Do I think that world is perfect? Absolutely not. People are still getting me too. I hate that that has become like a verb, but people are still getting me too every other day. But I do think that that had a, a momentum and it created a wave of, of women standing up and saying what they thought they deserved, that actually created change. And I was like, that's awesome. And then it just didn't happen in theater. <laughs> it just didn't happen. Like, we all know the stories. We all know the people who are other people, and they're all still working. So it's like, mm, cool. That's great. That's great. The theater is impervious uh, to goodness. <laughs> but, you know, now we're in this moment where something about this charged political climate, which like, you know, if this <laughs> were or if this were a podcast about like politics and war, I could go on forever about where I think we're headed, but this is not the podcast we're in. That sort of national fervor has meant that all these theater artists are standing up and speaking to the things that personally happen to them. And I'm like, that, that is new and it's different. And maybe it'll mean some change. Will it? I don't know. I, I have a lot of a lot of strong beliefs about capitalism being, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to us. And I think for all the ways that the nonprofit theater tries to be good, you know, a capitalist model is a capitalist model and capitalism equals misery. And it translates to oppression. So like, I don't see a way forward for like theater companies that isn't about leveling the financial playing field. And like, that's really what it is. Every theater company doing good work has a board and that board actually makes all the decisions. And most of those boards are entirely white and entirely wealthy. Mm -hmm. So to me, yelling at a group of old white people, you should see me feel silly because they don't have to (laughs) (laughs) because they have money. And so I'm like, okay, what are the ways that we weaponize and use to our benefit POC wealth, black wealth. You know what I mean? Like recently I'm gonna screw it up just because I'm on a rate I'm on I'm talking to you. 
<laughs> it's like Black Theater United, I think is what uh, that coalition's being called. And that one got me excited because it was like, we want to put out a statement about the ways that the theater can change. And I looked at the list of people on it and it was like Samuel Jackson, Audrey McDonald, like Delroy Lindo. And I was like, ooh, okay, this might have some heft. And not because I think that the voices of those people matters more than mine. Not that I think that the voices of those people should have like any more weight than the voice of like Charlie Yvonne Simpson. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that all of our voices matter because we're all working at every level in the theater, but those people have capital <laughs> and their names mean something and their decisions hold weight. And so I'm like, that feels promising. If that can keep happening, sure, maybe. I don't know though. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm a cynic through and through. You know, I believe in love and that's it. <laughs> so I'm like, this feels good and it all feels like, I don't know. It feels uh, ripe with something, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know where we're going. And I think that's a hard question to ask too, when the theater, even without this conversation about race, doesn't know where it's going. Like there's no theater until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Any theater before that is like, in my opinion, criminal. (laughs) So like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but maybe it's like the perfect storm. It might be the perfect storm. I mean, you hear all these stories of like people being laid off in mass at theaters all around the country and eventually they're going to have to beef back up. And it's a chance to beef up your staff and beef up the way you work with an eye toward actual inclusion. Like that'd be cool. I'd be excited about that. I don't know if it'll happen, but it sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm also a cynic and I don't even believe really. I have, I love has yet to convince me. (laughs) I believe I'm here. Yeah. I mean, even when we're talking about like inclusion in, staffs then I'm also like well what about audiences you know I do feel like there has to be like a training a retraining of you know what people are willing to pay money to go see or you know the whole financial structure yeah well I'm right there with you then like the systemic change that would have to happen in the theater is massive so I'm like is that gonna happen I don't know I don't know but it's a wonderful idea is there anything you wish you had known when you were starting out mm-hmm. before you chose to be a playwright? Before I chose to be a playwright. Also, was that a hard decision for you to become a playwright or was it just like natural? Mm. No, I, you know, I, I was one of those kids who was writing obsessively at a very young age. Um, and I didn't, and I wasn't like journaling. I always hated journaling. I'd always get a journal and try to do a few entries and then be like, I'm just lying. <laughs> I was like, I'm not I'm saying today I kissed Tommy. And like, I don't know anybody named Tommy. Like I was just lying. Cause I was like, this is how girls write in their diaries on like Lizzie McGuire. But <laughs> when I was like, oh, I hate journaling. I would just write these weird little stories, like sci-fi novellas. And I wrote a crap ton of fan fiction. And I think um, the impulse to, to write things down was always easy for me and pretty integral to me. And I think choosing to pursue it, which I decided in high school, because I went to performing arts high school first in New Orleans and then Hurricane Katrina happened. So I finished my arts education in D.C. at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. You know, I think it's easy to choose art when you're in an institution 
that has like birthed people who chose art and then turned it into careers. You know what I mean? It wasn't hard to be like, I'm going to be a playwright when I knew that Dave Chappelle graduated from my high school and Michelle Indicicello and Samira Wiley, like the list was massive. And so it was like, oh no, if we commit and we're good, we could turn this into something. Mm. But I also think that that's because I had the privilege of being able to identify what Arise looked like and what the work of art making looked like. And I was being taught by people who were publishing, submitting, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, in the beginning, I thought I would be a fiction writer and I still dream of writing a book. We'll see. Ask me again in like a decade. But I think choosing the theater was pretty easy the first time I heard my words read aloud. I was like, this is it. Because it actually was a return. Even though it was a completely new form for my writing, it was a return to how I thought about story. Because my whole life, my idea of storytelling was films, movies. I think I was raised by people who truly, truly, truly love storytelling in a, some, for some of them in a heady way and for others in a totally just everyday way. You know, my mom loves atonement as much as she loves and living color as much as she loves. Like, she doesn't discriminate. I think my mom's favorite movie is The Lion King. When it came out in like the like golden edition, she was like, I got it. I bought it. You know what I mean? It's just like a grown woman with five kids. But like, if it's good, she's down. And like, we as a family consumed media. And so like, I think that my idea of what was moving was already dramatic, but I just didn't know I could write it. And when I started writing plays, I was like, oh, this is like, this is like that other thing I like. This is like Seinfeld. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. And if I write like horror, it could be like the Twilight Zone. Because I had a great aunt who I think I've seen all the Twilight Zone just sitting on her lap. You know what I mean? So it's like a, it was actually me, the writer, finding the format I think I was truly meant to write in, but I just hadn't found it yet. And it just took the right teacher and the right opportunity. And then for me, there was no other consideration. You know, I didn't apply to BFA programs. I went to Smith and I studied theater there, but I also um, minor in education and took all kinds of classes. You know, religion, African-American studies, American studies. I took a few science classes. Like I wanted to be a learned person who tried to figure out something about how the world worked. Mm. But I also knew I was going to be a playwright. And for me, that comes at some some costs. You know, I grew up outside New Orleans and inside. It's kind of complicated because um, my, my mom lives in the a metro area suburb of the city and my dad's family live in and around the city and the suburbs. And so my time was always kind of split in the weirdest ways. But I I knew that pursuing a career in art meant that I wouldn't live in New Orleans and almost my entire maternal family is still like there. Mm -hmm. And there are branches in Memphis and branches, but like for the most part, they're all there. And so I was choosing to pursue something that meant that I would not be near the people I love most. And I chose it pretty young. So it's like, oh, that's the path I'm on. And I feel like in my adulthood, I have no regrets, but I am trying to figure out ways to repave those paths. I sort of like was like, well, I don't know how to build those. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I live in DC and Massachusetts. I don't always know how to like reach out to where I grew up, even though I totally did. I think I was just like scared and maybe I don't know, a little ashamed of not, you know, I should talk to a therapist and figure out what all that is. But it was like, like now, 
as a grown person, I'm like, oh, the place that is the most me and the place that I feel the most me is actually still that place. And so how do I refine that love? Having found the thing and figured out how to do the thing I love, it's like, how do I make home home again? Because it hasn't been home for so long. Um, it's hard. I, I feel like choosing to pursue art is choosing to walk through doors for everyone, but I think it's different for POCs, especially POCs which, who have family histories where they've never touched art. You know what I mean? <laughs> like where art is a luxury and you go, I'd like to play forever. And your parents are like, what? I thought, no, doctor, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they don't even know when you actually achieve something. They have no, they have no context for it. And so context for it. I feel like um, I haven't seen it yet, but um, one of the actresses from Insecure has a comedy special that's coming up on HBO and they keep playing the clip and I have not been able to shake it. But it's like when her, she says some joke about how when she told her very Nigerian mom that she wanted to be a stand-up comedian, all her mom heard was "You want to pro- she wants to prostitute herself. <laughs> and now if you go into her mom's house, her mom is like, do you have the HBO? <laughs> because my daughter is on the HBO. And it's like, I feel like I love the theater forever and my family never knew what that was. But my first TV show, they were like, turn on, turn on Fox. <laughs> And like, I'd suddenly made it with this thing that I was proud of, but that is not like nowhere near as close to my heart as a theater. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that'll do. (laughs) I, you know, you win some, you lose some. (laughs) Yeah. So the last thing is, uh, yeah, the advice, what do you wish you had known? Yes. What do I wish I had known? I wish, because so much of me becoming an artist and figuring out how to be a writer was both like emotional and professional, but also geographic, you know? And this continuing move further and further away from the place I was born. I wish I had known that everything I wrote was just gonna be about the place I was born. (laughs) I wish I had known that I needed to remember a bit more. Because even now, even when I think I'm writing about something else, my childhood just creeps in. And not in ways that are necessarily always about trauma or always about any other thing that are just about like cadence and about the ways people love in Louisiana and the ways history is both present and completely invisible in the South. And I think that like, that is such a deep part of who I am and how I write and what I find interesting that I wish I just held on a bit tighter to those parts of myself. I didn't, I was fighting so hard as a teenager to justify the choice to live far away from my family, to justify, you know, the choice to be queer, even though that didn't mean that I was turning against my family, but that took years to figure out (laughs) and be like, oh, that's just some weird stuff you internalized when you were young. Just go be gay. Um, (laughs) But like, I think now that I know that they were the right choices and now that I know that like this like search for a career was the right one. I wish that I had trusted that and not tried to replace. To sort of like look at the things that made me me and be like, well, I should find new things because I might not be that person ever again. And it's like, I'm that person forever. (laughs) I will always, I recently was home with my cousins and uh, 
we're all out drinking and I'm tired. Like this is maybe two years ago now, but I was talking to my, one of my cousins, um, a woman, and she made this joke where my mom, my mom had five kids, but she also, because she had five kids, our house was the house where all the sleepovers happened and where everybody came uh, for parties and things like that. My mom was just like the hub for children. And my cousin Rachel would come down for weekends a lot. And I remember she made this joke when we were out at a bar where she was, we were making jokes about, my sister, my sister's really social when we were kids and well-liked. And it's not that I wasn't, it's just that sometimes I could be quiet. In my mind, I'm like, I was just quiet and like, you know, just wanted to read my books. And my cousin was like, you were really mean. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? And she was like, you would make me sleep on the floor. Like your mom would be like, let's just share the bed. And you would be like, sleep on the floor. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, that never happened. And she's like, yeah, that happened multiple times. <laughs> And it also makes complete sense for like, I had control stuff as a child. Like I, I wanted, when adults weren't around, it's like I wanted the world to be secure. And I think that that's where that sort of meanness could come from. I also think I got it very honest. My mom's got a mean streak, but like, <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I wish I'd remember that. Cause then I'd understand when I flip out sometimes in my adulthood. <laughs> but I just didn't have it. And it, I feel like, that's like this tiny, tiny version of like understanding self, but then also understanding turns in my work. Cause sometimes things happen in my plays that I don't understand and people love those things. They're like, Ooh, I love that. Where'd that come from? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Probably my childhood. I wish I remembered more of it. <laughs> Can't give us context. It'll stay because I think it might be good, but um, I can tell you what it is. <laughs> And I, yeah, I wish I just remembered more and trusted more the things I knew and not felt like I needed to learn a bunch of new things. Like the years when I was trying to write like avant-garde, like pretending I was Albie and like pretending I was these other people and that's not who I am. Like I needed to be honest about who I actually am. And I knew I wanted to be a playwright when I read Fences. And there's nothing wrong with that. I actually knew I wanted to be a playwright when I read Fences and both loved it and had some real problems with certain parts of it. Then I was like, ooh, I have opinions here this is the person who wants to make this thing. You know what I mean? And like, I, we can get swept up in the sort of the climb. Like, how do you, how do you set yourself apart? How do you make yourself a name? And I, and I, it took me a while to figure out none of that matters. All you have to do is tell a story that's true and a story that scares you and not because it's like bold, but because it's true. And once you say it, people will know you said it and that might have some cost. Like then you're on the right path. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scare me. I'm like, nah, I don't need to write that one. <laughs> I'm feeling that and like in my bones, everything you just said. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is so fun. That was CA Johnson. Thank you so much for listening. If you ever have any feedback or thoughts, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I am so appreciative of you. If you're marching or protesting or even just going to the grocery store, wear a mask, wash your hands, and most importantly, take care of yourself. <laughs>